Hello everybody, welcome back. We're going to start this episode in a slightly unusual way, diverting from the norm, uh, because we've had a very lovely email from one of our listeners answering a request that we put out after our Easter episode for uh, funny stories that may have incurred a cake fine. If you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about, number one, stop this episode now, go back and listen to the Easter (laughs) lockdown episode, where much hilarity uh, was was experienced because of uh, an article that you brought to the table, Tom. Yes, and and we've actually received a response. So yes, my article was about incompetent police officers and their uh, informal system of cake fines. And we asked, I think, more in hope than expectation, our lovely listeners to provide us with examples of uh, misdemeanours from the teaching profession, uh, which could be punishable by cake. And uh, an anonymous, (laughs) well, not anonymous to us, but anonymous on here, uh, correspondent, has uh, come up trumps with two. So we're going to read one out each, I think, aren't we? We are indeed. So I'll start, without further ado, with, with number one. I was called to a classroom where a teacher had fainted. I ran to the classroom, sent the year nine learners to a nearby classroom to be supervised by a colleague who was free and asked the school first aider who was in attendance if I could be of any support. At this point, the teacher who was still lying on the classroom floor looked up and confessed, I'm fine. I just tripped over and fell. I was so embarrassed that I thought the best way to deal with it was to pretend I'd fainted. I had no words. Oh, no. I thought that was absolutely delightful. I can just imagine in in those kind of split seconds post-fall just... (laughs) making the choice to just pretend yeah see i i can't help thinking maybe they weren't from the expressive arts because i i don't know about you but i always found it best just to just to own the humiliation and just run with it style it out absolutely yeah yeah definitely i mean you know we've got the giggles you know get the hiccups no matter what it was i mean i I probably fell over in the classroom i can't remember now to be honest i should imagine i did but you know i'll give them i'll give them top marks for taking a decision and running with it there yeah i think that does that definitely definitely top marks with taking the decision but definitely a cake find oh cake find a, a, a pretty large pile of cakes for that one i think for for the whole department and especially our our friend who had to uh <laughs> send a whole class somewhere else all right number two then um from the same yep. same writer our relatively new head had finished a lesson observation five minutes before the end of an art lesson he stood up opened the door, exited and closed the door behind him. The teacher and class were horrified as he'd walked straight into the very small art store cupboard. No one knew what to do. After a minute or so, he opened the door, pronounced, everything seems to be in order and exited through the classroom door. This story shot round the school and caused great hilarity to learners and staff, especially as the head never spoke about it. <laughs> Style it out, no, again. come on. <laughs> Again, I would have just emerged and just fessed up straight away. But um... yeah, that's why you and I will probably never be head teachers. That's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> it's funny actually. I, it I worked with a colleague who um, had a pu- who told me in a previous job he had a pupil who uh, who uh, had, had 
I, I put himself in a in a cupboard for some reason or other. I can't remember, and uh, I th- I think he went maybe went through the wrong door. And my colleague uh, went off for his lunch break and locked the classroom door. And <gasps> uh, when he came back, <laughs> the people uh, emerged emerged from the little. No, he maybe he locked the cupboard. I can't remember anyway. He locked a door. Oh so my this word! Poor boy couldn't get out. And when he when he returned, the pupil just walked straight past him very briskly and said something like, "Don't worry about it, sir. It was entirely my fault." <laughs> oh, that is. Oh, that is excellent. That is absolutely <laughs> hilarious. See, now, if a pupil had gotten locked in my cupboard, or indeed the head, they could have had absolute rarers, because a drama oh, yeah. cupboard drama is um, an Aladdin's yeah. cave of wonders. <laughs> Always a comfy sofa. I've said this before, haven't I? <laughs> hey. <laughs> um, now, I know that... Uh, the lovely list, listener who sent us uh, these two um, delightful stories is is hopefully listening to this episode. So I'd like to say a big thank you to our anonymous listener. Um, yes. You don't always know whether anyone's out there and, and, and enjoying what you're putting out there. And, and this listener, number one, said that they were enjoying what, what we were putting out, but also, you know, decided to make contact. So if this inspires any anyone else, um, do feel free to, uh, to drop us a line, drop us a message message maybe leave us a, a review at the same time and uh, and we will be sure to put out some more of your stories over the airwaves that would be lovely. we should send out some cake shouldn't we for that uh, fantastic thing we should we should it's <laughs> a very good idea <laughs> well anyway we have tacked this on the front of a previously recorded episode because we wanted to respond to the lovely email but uh, for now we're going to get on with what we were originally planning to bring you Hello and welcome back to the podcast. You find us still in the depths of a nationwide coronavirus lockdown. So I'm in my garden shed and Emma's still speaking to me from her house using the magic of technology. That's right. And we're stretching the magic a little further today because we've managed to get hold of a friend of the podcast from Happier Times, one of the stars of our live curriculum design episode from earlier this year. Dr. Kevin Smith from Cardiff University is an expert in curriculum theory and he had our audience of student teachers gripped with his passionate call for us all to engage with the really big ideas about what we're doing as we make the transition here in Wales from being curriculum deliverers to curriculum designers. Along the way he cautioned against glib answers to these really difficult questions, empty signifiers that show that we haven't really thought things through. How can you help someone achieve their potential? In order to do that, you have to be able to understand and know their potential. If they're going to achieve it, it must have a limit. Can we say that we can understand the limit of someone's potential? And also, what happens when someone reaches their potential? If you're in a lesson and suddenly a student says, Miss, I think I just achieved my potential. What are you going to do? What are they going to do? And I think as human beings, do we want to achieve our potential? Where do we go from there? And so what happens is when we say, I want young people to achieve their potential, it's because we're not thinking carefully enough about what we hope to achieve as teachers. It's the answer we give when we don't know what to say. We wanted to give a whole episode of our podcast over to examining those really big concepts and what they mean for us as teachers. We're not going to be defeated by the COVID-19 pandemic, so I'm delighted to say that Dr. Kevin Smith has joined us on the line from his home in the South Wales Valleys. Dr. Kev, welcome. 
Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> back to the podcast. Yes, this is very strange. Uh, of course, Mike, before we get into the deep conceptual stuff that uh, we just talked about in the in that intro there, how are you coping in these very weird times? Uh, we're, uh, we're doing all right. We're doing really well. We've uh, been keeping ourselves busy with uh, rediscovering our love of cooking and, and all that good stuff. So... Yeah, that sounds that sounds good. Go on. We've been spoiling ourselves with uh, Mexican cooking because that was the biggest adjustment living uh, in the UK was having to leave our favorite foods behind, which were Mexican dishes. And so we've spent the past three or four weeks perfecting our Oaxacan salsa. Wow. And I hear your students have been benefiting from uh, these uh, culinary uh, delights. Yeah, I, I'm lucky because I'm convening a, a module called Radical Education and... and uh, I've been recording some little Cooking with Kevin episodes with them in our collaborate sessions online, and we talk about the curriculum of salsa. So it, it's been a great, different, but good experience. Well, unfortunately, this is not going to be uh, an episode on the curriculum of salsa, but I do want to get you back for another episode dedicated entirely to the curriculum of salsa, please. <laughs> <laughs> but before we uh, we get on to curriculum matters, could you just remind our listeners a little bit about um, what you do um, and maybe just a flavour of your journey from classroom practitioner to education academic? Sure, I'll, I'll try and be brief. <laughs> um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a senior lecturer in education in the School of Social Sciences at Cardiff University. And uh, my main area, even though I've had a pretty diverse and interesting path getting here, uh, my main area of interest is curriculum theorizing. And specifically, I'm interested in, in kind of the cultural interactions, the intersections between curriculum and, and culture. Um, but what really was a, a funny start, you could say, was I, I wasn't always an educator. And for the first 13 years of my life, I was in business until finally I just realized I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was on the right path. And so um, and I only had a high school uh, education. So even though I had become fairly successful, fairly successful in the marketing world, I just wasn't really happy. And my wife says, well, clearly, you know, we need to figure out how to get you happy. And and I felt like I had a calling to fulfill, and that was in teaching. And so I, I went back to university and did my bachelor's and my master's and my PhD, just all back to back, and uh, started teaching shortly after I finished my bachelor's. Um, so I was about 31 years old, 32 years old, I think. And um, my very first teaching job was in an inner city school in uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, and reconciling my teacher education and then the actual day-to-day lived experience of, of teaching in that particular classroom was such a, a jarring experience in some ways, not a negatively jarring experience, but one that just was really a rich, you know, a lively experience that it, it really triggered my curiosity. And it just happened to be at the same time that I was beginning my master's uh, studies and so I'm reading new uh, ideas, uh, new theories, kind of connecting what I'm reading to what I'm doing in the classroom. And and, and it was just a really exciting uh, aspect of my life. It also um, 
I think that interplay between theory and practice, that, that praxis, if you will, um, also contributed to me losing that job in a funny way because I was undertaking a um, very social activist approach to curriculum planning and instruction. So I was trying to take the, the I was an ICT teacher and it's really hard to make that relevant to, uh, to the concerns when you open up a book on or a chapter on Excel and formatting an Excel spreadsheet and it, the instructions say, <laughs> you know, pretend that you're a CEO of a widget producing company and the kids go, I don't want to pretend I'm the CEO of a widget. I don't care what widgets are. I, I'm living in an impoverished area in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I've got real life challenges facing me. You know, I, I, I felt like I was really undermining the potential of, of the curriculum for them by taking that kind of mundane approach. And so we flipped the curriculum around and started looking at how can I meet the the standards and outcomes that are listed in the curriculum in a way that gets the young people involved in the local politics and conversations about uh you know like uh, they, for instance they were debating whether we should be smoking in public places at the time and my pupils many of them even though they're 14 15 years old were smoking and so i said, and their parents were smoking and i said okay well you know you guys have a voice in this let's contact our local politicians let's write to our state politicians let's put some um posters together around the school to get people talking about it and they formatted those all through word and and counted votes in excel and stuff like that so we were meeting you know the tick boxy i hate to say kind of standard sides of things but what was really happening is the curriculum was becoming much more alive for us in in a, in a real way but that eventually translated uh to them becoming so politically involved that they were supposed to have a position on the board of governors as a, as a student advisee a student role on there and they weren't being given that opportunity and they um planned a, sh a strike a sit-in at school without me knowing about it and i show up to school on wow. monday morning and there's you know 100 students lined up in the corridors going we're not going to school today because dr smith says that we need to express our voice you know kind of a thing um <laughs> So, so it was great, and uh, but the next year the school district didn't renew my contract. <laughs> oh, no. oh my goodness! What a story! Yeah, I, I I wrote about it in my blog um, that I that I have in a much more succinct fashion. So you know, I recommend if anybody's interested to to check out my blog, but. Yeah. So then the, what happened to that was is I, I always wanted to come to Wales. I found an opportunity to do an international teaching research fellowship at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David. Um, so right after my teaching contract ended, I came to Wales for a semester and taught um, an introduction to um, social inclusion, I think it was, or inclusive practice and education module. And then when that was over, I went back to the States um, and uh, continued on with my my PhD. During that time I was doing my PhD, I was also got a different teaching job at a very affluent school. Um, it was the fifth ranked school district in the state. Um, we had Congress people's children there. One of my students, a year seven pupil, she had a personal shopper and her budget for um, her monthly expenditures was roughly my house payment at the time. <laughs> and Gosh, so night went, and day. Yeah, I went from one extreme to the other. Um, but when I wrapped up my PhD, um, I had some serious conversations with my family about what our next steps were. And, and the idea was to go uh, to teach at a university. I put out many, many applications and uh, eventually was offered a position at the University of the South Pacific, which meant that my family and I would move to Tonga for two years. 
And so we spent two years uh, in the South Pacific working with the 11 Pacific Island nations in developing policy for their individual contexts. So I was lucky enough to uh, write and develop the National Teacher Registration and Certification Program for, for Tonga and to contribute to the standards for head teachers in the Pacific region and just some really exciting work. Uh, but it wasn't where we wanted to, to be. We always wanted to come to Wales because of my family's connections to Wales. So that's that's how I got here. Wow, what a range of experience. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly quite Quantum. a backstory, isn't it? And uh, nice to hear that uh, being a rebel ended up well uh, for you in your story. <laughs> uh, when you uh, came down and spoke to our students and, and some of our listeners may have heard your your uh, presentation in that, that long um, session that we had, you gave us an absolute roll call of curriculum theories and curriculum theorists. You, uh, you famously kind of brought your books and uh, got them out of your rucksack in front of the students. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, gave them quite the reading list. So in terms of your own kind of practice and your own philosophy of education, what, uh, where, where do you sit in the landscape of curriculum theory and which, which theorists have been most kind of formative in guiding your practice and your philosophy? Uh, I think it really start, started with me by differentiating between curriculum theory and then curriculum theorizing. Because uh, a, a curriculum theory is basically it, it compri it's comprised of approaches that try to uh, make curricular decisions based on these kind of universal generalizations or by concentrating on curricular models. And so, you know, it, it's like looking for a unified theory of curriculum, for instance. And and I was very skeptical of these kinds of approaches. But when you look at what curriculum theorizing is, then it, it shifts a bit and we start to think about carefully about how real people in specific situations can uh, intellectualize curriculum, how they can come to understand it. How do we arrive at the most desirable course of action that can then be carried out in those circumstances? And this is all subject to deliberation and critique and change, and it's an ongoing process. It should be part, in my opinion, of every teacher's uh, practice. Uh, you know, it, it involves praxis, this reflect action and reflection, but it also involves giving teachers time to sit back and, and, and put together a theory about what they're doing or what they hope to achieve. And in fact, a lot of times we talk about theory without really knowing what it is we're talking about, like what is a theory, for instance. So my particular, uh, or at least the, the area of curriculum theorizing that I am most persuaded by, the one that I find most exciting to work in, is, is broadly referred to as reconceptualist uh, curriculum theorizing. In the 60s, uh, an individual named Schwab, there was a lot of deliberation in, in curriculum at the time about, is it a field? Is it a discipline? And, and what are we doing? And, and Schwab wrote a famous uh, article where he basically said the curriculum field, the, the field of curriculum is moribund. We have nowhere to go. And we need a kind of re-envisioning or reconceptualization of the field. And so when that happened, then people started to take critical exploratory approaches to uh, curriculum theorizing. We started to think about social control, social reproduction, those kinds of things. So like Basil Bernstein, for instance, was working in, in, from a sociological perspective on curriculum, looking at social control. Uh, Bowles and Gintis were talking about social reproduction and uh, the, their famous article about schooling a capitalist America. Um, Bourdieu obviously was writing about cultural reproduction uh, with the idea of distinction and taste and, and cultural capital. 
Um, Henry Drew uh, is also looking at cultural reproduction, and he was actually calling for a, a, a renewal of language. He wanted a completely different language that, language about curriculum and teaching that separated stuff, was disembarked from this uh, capitalist discourse that we have in, in society. Um, Eisner is one of my heroes, and he is taking kind of a literary artistic approach. His whole philosophy was taking an artistic approach to education. So Elliot Eisner has um, these really wonderful ideas like uh, of, of, of connoisseurship and criticism. You know, this idea that connoisseurship, if you are looking at a piece of art, for instance, you can have... Um, an appreciation for that and that appreciation can be displayed in in the character the import and the value the situations of the objects and that connoisseurship comes from this this um the uh, the latin word cognoscere which is to know and so it's it's the ability to not just look at something but to see it to understand it and to understand the, the individual component parts as they come together as a whole but also in terms of what they express the values that they're they draw upon what they make us feel these kinds of things so this connoisseurship is not a technical exercise it's the bringing together different elements which involves judgment and a sense of artistry a sense of aesthetic but then on the other side of that, we have this idea of criticism, which is um, an idea that he borrowed from Dewey, that criticism is a uh, disclosure, it's the art of disclosure. And so you are being able to look at, at individual pieces and, and understand their use and understand the potential, how well they're being used, that kind of a thing. It, it's very similar to, to practice reflection and action, like what Freire talks about. But I, I really like his approach to things because he's using these terms like connoisseurship as a way of rejecting a kind of technical approach to understanding curriculum. And that's why he can be seen as kind of a critical, exploratory, kind of reconceptualist figure. Other folks, though, like uh, William Pinar, takes an existential approach um, or, or an autobiographical approach. So his method of, of curriculum reflection, called Carrere, is one where teachers think about their um, educational experiences in the past and, and what those like you might look at a particular episode or vignette of your past and you think about what was the quality of that experience. Um, then you might think about how it's informing your current state and then how between going between the, the current and the past might you then inform your future. Um, how does this relate to your values and your goals, your aspirations, these kinds of things. And for some people who don't work within this critical exploratory realm, it, it, it might seem a little too abstract because it, it can be quite theoretical. Uh, but in some ways, um, I find that to be liberating because then we're working at the edges. We're kind of pushing the boundaries of how we've come to understand curriculum. It's really interesting, uh, A, hearing you, you talk about these different theories, but B, what you just mentioned about working in the abstract. And you, I know, um, have done some research yourself into some of the challenges that teacher practitioners face in engaging with research, having time to connect with some of these theories. We on the PGC programme, as you might know, only have nine months to deliver this programme and there are increasing demands on, on student teachers' time, on teachers' time. So what advice would you give to us as ITE tutors and academics about the sort of curriculum theories that are an absolute must for teacher trainees to engage with? Uh, boy, I think maybe 
That's that's a tough one. Uh, I think for, for one <laughs> thing is it gets, you hate to kind of say something because it's not so much an endorsement as as identifying some some significant movements. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is is Ralph Tyler's basic principles of curriculum and instruction, and and what this was is Ralph Tyler was a fascinating individual. He had uh, he was working in the in the early part of the 20th century, and he um, was part of a, a committee that was thinking about reviewing curriculum in the United States. And he put together this book in 1949. And he said, this is not a manual. This is not like a step-by-step process about how to build curricula. But um, it's been, it's so clear and it's so precise and it's so linear in its construction that it, it, everybody tends to view it as a kind of manual. And so its strength and its clarity and its precision is also its weakness because it's too, it, it reduces the complexity of, of curriculum uh, down to something that is really not uh, accurate or reasonable. Um, there are some questions about how we go about play the curriculum that, that he uh, has just reduced to a kind of a four-step process, basically. So he starts with some big questions. What educational purposes should the school seek to attain? How can learning experiences be selected that are useful in attaining those objectives? How can those experiences be organized so that they're effective and they have they include effective instruction? And then how can the effectiveness of the learning experiences be evaluated? So, I mean, you can still see his ideas influencing now. We, we have uh, Grant and Wiggins put together this understanding by design concept, and they've reduced his four steps down to three steps. What do we want pe- pupils to be able to do? What experiences do we need to provide for them to give us evidence to, uh, to evaluate that? And then how are we going to evaluate that, basically? So what's nice about Tyler's approach is it was really the first time where there's this very strong, coherent uh, uh, approach to curriculum development, but what is problematic about it is it oversimplified the complexity of, of curriculum development. But I think we do have to kind of start with with Tyler, and then from there, like I mentioned before, we had Joseph Schwab saying that um, after the course of of working in curriculum in a very kind of uh, technical rationale, a very means and kind of approach. Um, we needed to to break out of that because there were there are things happening in schools which are very complex sociological uh, environments, sociocultural environments that that aren't being addressed through the curriculum. And so, even though we have Tyler writing in 1949 with using his rationale. We have people who are looking back at, at Dewey's ideas that there's this, this this quality of experience that provides young people with the ability to make meaning. It's that it's that make meaning of their experience that contributes to their knowledge. That's the process of knowing this transaction between the internal conditions of the individual and the external conditions of the learning environment, for instance. And so when Tyler wasn't necessarily addressing that as discreetly as some people wanted him to or thought he should, they started saying, oh, you know, we need to push out the boundaries of curriculum to think more about individuals. So then we start to see from this the different areas of curriculum uh, development and design and, and theory take place. Um, so Tyler Rational definite uh, start there. Uh, Joshua Schwab, um, William Pinar is um, there's a book that he co-wrote with Bill Reynolds and 
oh, I can't remember the other author, but it's a it's an enormous enormous tome called Understanding Curriculum. I think it's something like 800 pages, 600 pages, and the first four chapters of that is, is a key text for anyone who's interested in kind of understanding the history of curriculum and the organization and development of the field. So I, I would just maybe give those two recommendations right off the bat. I suppose uh, it's time to turn our gaze on the context we find ourselves in here in Wales. It's unavoidable, I guess, that we, we're going to discuss curriculum reform with a curriculum uh, theory expert. Um, what are your thoughts about uh, the position that we find ourselves in. I mean, I guess curriculum reform is always, by by definition, it's going to be a political thing. It's it's kind of set in train by government, uh, by government policy. Um, one of the major features of our curriculum reform process is this aim to try to ensure that that the practitioners um, at the chalk face have got much more of a say in the curriculum design as well as the delivery. How do you feel we're doing so far in terms of that kind of balance between the different parties involved, the sort of politics side of it, and I suppose the the unending educational debate um, often kind of boiled down to traditional versus progressive that's always going on there in the background. What, what do you think? Yeah, it's, I mean, you're right about it, it being political, both big P and, and little p politics. I, I, I don't want to give kind of an evaluative uh you know, response in terms of, of how well we're doing. But I think it, it's an important time to recognize and to appreciate that at least we are having these, what Pinar calls complicated conversations about curriculum. Because if, if it was just straightforward, if we weren't having these kind of sometimes painful deliberations, then I think we would be missing out on producing an, a, a really rich curriculum that has the potential to impact people's lives in a very positive ways. I think what I would like to see personally, though, is um, more of a emphasis. I, it seems like we went from this idea that here comes a new curriculum, and it's based on this uh, report, uh, Successful Futures, which has, you know, it's an evidence-based report, and now we we have this framework. And we went from evidence to framework very quickly um, without a lot of... Uh, well, I didn't see a lot of critique of or examination of the evidence. And then the Welsh government adopted all 60-something plus uh, recommendations. And and so we moved through that aspect of things very, very quickly. And and now after we've gone through the development part, we we also went from, from this acceptance of the recommendations to, to developing the curriculum without thinking so much about the design of the curriculum. Other people were thinking about it, but in terms of the actual teachers in the pioneer schools and the AOLE groups, it, it seemed in my, just anecdotally in my conversations with them, that that part, this idea about how do we design things just went racing by them. Now what I'm afraid of is that now that we have the curriculum framework you know, in place, and they're going to be asked now to develop actual school-level curricula, they're going to go uh, and, and skip over the next logical step, which is how do we theorize curriculum? Uh, you know, at, at the school level now, what are the uh, basic starting points that we need to be engaged with, things to consider, for instance? You know, like when we undertake curriculum work, there really are three or four absolute starting points are things to consider at the very beginning. One is, is that we have a we must have a clear understandable conceptualization of what we mean by curriculum. 
and then we have to have an articulated and understandable process of development. So, you know, it starts from a, a, a common shared, of like an explicit communication of the values from which decisions are based. So if parent and pupil participation is part of the development process, then we need to know why are they included? What is the rationale? Why and how is their participation valuable? valued and, and therefore important. And then once, as we are working through these things, we also need to have a critical understanding of the context in which we're undertaking this work and the values in which, the, uh, and the context in which these values are situated. So we can look at the tensions, at the interests that are, are affecting these kinds of, uh, uh, this kind of work. And so it, every school is gonna have to sit down and really think, what do we mean by curriculum? What do we mean? How is when now we have an understanding of what we mean by curriculum? What is our process of development explicitly, step by step? Where are we going with this? And and all of that has to be circumscribed by a shared vision of the values, the goals, the aims, and and we can't rely just on the four purposes because those four purposes have to be interpreted. And so the four purposes really, even though they kind of sit out on the horizon as things that we aspire to that the way we interpret those four purposes influences how we conceptualize our steps to development and, and how we conceptualize this notion of curriculum. And if we skip that stuff, that's, that's, that's problematic. Yeah, and, and this touches upon uh, some of the points that you made in a, an article that you published back in 2017, I think it was, where you're looking at um, research capacity for teachers in, in England and Wales. And, and I just wondered what your thoughts were on, on what the role research might play in this period of time where all of those those steps that need to be taken, you know, how, how research might impact on that. What are the biggest gains to be made by chasing that goal? And are there any risks and, and threats to, you know, everything that you just described and engagement with research actually having having efficacy in in, in this current climate? The engagement, in, I think we're doing a, a, a great job as, as Wales in general in, in privileging this idea of, of being research informed. I get nervous when we talk about research based because that suggests that you have to kind of, without your professional judgment, uh, take data and, and the findings from data and implement those into your practice. And that circumvents the, the teacher's professional judgment. So I like research informed. The challenge, though, is that we don't have a, a great track record. Like we don't have a great track record with curriculum theory, we don't have a great track record with with engaging in educational research for the teaching force, which is caused by a, a number of factors. But one of those is that we just haven't also had a history of capacity for high quality research in Wales either. And so, you know, like um, different universities, I know there's a lot of work at Cardiff Met working on that. There's a national uh, strategy that's being led by Welsh government to put that together. Of course, uh, Wizard, the Wales Institute of Social Economic Research Data Methods, um, they're, they're also been involved in that. And so there, there's headway being made there, um, but it wasn't until just recently where we started rolling out the new curriculum that I think we're actually starting to make good progress in that direction. So not only in, in how do we interpret 
educational research that's been done by uh, researchers. That that's that's problematic because if we don't have a history of engaging with that, then it's hard sometimes for people to say, well, how do I evaluate this research? Is this are the methods uh, robust? Are they reliable? Are the findings reliable? If it's qualitative, can we? Is this trustworthy? Um, you know those kinds of things. Is it transferable to a context? But the other thing too I've noticed is that um, there's difficulty in teasing out arguments. So. You know, you can provide empirical evidence, but then there are also normative arguments that can go along with with research. And so, understanding, being skeptical of of of, of the evidence, such that not that you reject it, but that you understand the different factors that came together in producing it, that it's not value-free, that it was produced in a particular context, that there is an assumption about the strength of particular methods versus others, and that different methods are used for different aims and purposes than other methods. That kind of stuff, I think we need to be more engaged with uh, in terms of our teacher education. We need to you know, make sure that our uh, newly qualified teachers, when they're out in the field, can effectively evaluate the research that's being presented to them so they can then use their personal, their professional judgment to its utmost effectiveness. That's really interesting, really interesting, because there's maybe a danger that sort of in that vacuum, there is perhaps a tendency for um, writers, companies to come along and provide sort of easy, easy digests of, you know, massive research studies or evidence that um, that they assume busy practitioners won't be able to have the skills or the time to be able to kind of look into the nuances of look dig deeper into so and I wonder if that might sort of bypass some really good critical discussions uh, about research yeah absolutely and I think you know this this idea that we have schools as learning organizations is is a great approach to trying to mitigate the the problems of being ignorant of of the complexities of research or of being kind of susceptible to organizations and consultants and companies that, you know, a new curriculum ultimately means a, a new market as well. And so we have, like what you said, this this problem of people coming in saying, oh, you know what, we, we understand the current curriculum framework and we you can, we can take the pressure off your school and your teachers because we've produced this curriculum for you. Well, that works entirely against the idea of subsidiarity, which is one of the main organizational principles of the new curriculum, that decisions are being made at the most appropriate level for those decisions to be made by the people who are you know at those places of, of decision making. And so we don't want to do that. Um, the idea that in, in Wales now the curriculum is starting at the local and is branching out to the global, we, we want to make sure that whatever uh, approaches to curriculum that we're making do actually start in the in the local. And two, you know, if you are given uh, something, these kind of teacher-ready materials, I mean, it can be a, a starting point for, for critical engagement, but if teachers, if schools are provided the opportunities to start on the ground floor with the things I just mentioned earlier about talking about values and, and a shared understanding of the process and stuff like that, there are, there are going to be miles ahead than teachers that are given or schools that are given uh, teacher-ready materials uh, because they've gone through that process of creation and critique. And, and they're, they're not just starting cold, but they're doing iterations as they give feedback and evaluate. And that the whole thing about curriculum implementation is that 
it's really just an, an extension of the development process because you you should be reflecting on it, critiquing it, improving it, reflecting on it, critiquing it, improving it as you move out. These teacher-ed materials are kind of delivered as a de facto definition of what you should be doing. Well, I wanted to come back because you played, you played that clip about potential. That was such a great... Um... <laughs> A point that you made about potential so I, I can't remember what was at the start of that though Kev what was the question that you asked teachers was it what do you hope to achieve we we asked them what their top priority in the classroom was that's it so if if I may I wanted to ask you what's your top priority in the classroom oh you got me uh it's to help them <laughs> achieve their potential clearly um no uh, <laughs> <laughs> It, uh, it really depends because uh, you teach different things at different times. And so, um, you know, when I was a ICT teacher at the, that inner city school, you have multiple priorities, but w what is the most singular priority? I think it's a really, it's kind of an unfair question. Like we were asking those teachers, what is your top priority? Because, you know, that takes a lot of consideration. For me, I, I think what I was most concerned with was how do I create and provide co-construct a learning experience with these young people that will have real meaningful impact in their lives that'll that will give them current opportunity and future opportunity i think at the time in my professional development i had just come to the realization that our schooling experiences are often these concatenated periods of arrested development. So you go from element primary school into secondary school. The purpose of primary school is to prepare you for secondary school. Secondary school is prepare you for college. College prepares you for university. University prepares you for a job. That's what it kind of feels like. It's been reduced down to this kind of minimal. I mean, obviously there's more that happens there, but these are the kind of the, the strongest discourses that are organizing a lot of uh, schooling experiences nowadays. And, and I felt like instead of having my pupils, my, my young people that I'm sharing this experience with constantly waiting for the next step. How do I get them to be involved? How do I get them to live this educational moment now? And so I wanted them to be cognitively present. I wanted them to be emotionally present. I wanted them to be physically present. I wanted them to be spiritually, whatever you want to call that. You know, I, I just wanted it to be alive. And uh, a lot of that came from this book that uh, from Marsh and Willis called a uh, curriculum alternative approaches and ongoing issues. And they, they conceptualize curriculum into three basic categories that you have the planned curriculum, which is what we you know that kind of formal document that we put together. The enacted curriculum is where we perform that formal document, but then there's this idea of the lived curriculum. And that is the, the experience of everyone that's involved in the room. And it's things that happen outside of what we planned, things that we can't foresee, elements of the hidden curriculum, aspects of the null curriculum, things that don't get included. You know, And so this idea of how do we live this educational experience, I think that was my, my top priority then. And I think that still kind of is driving me now. Um, because I'm doing this radical education module with my my students, and and by radical we don't mean you know how can you be this left wing socialist per se, but just that radical comes from the Latin root radix, which means to grab something by the roots. And so what I'm trying to get them to think about is in their current situation right now with themselves as learners and young people and citizens and men and women and every other you know element that intersects with them. How do they 
grab that moment, that experience by its roots so that they can understand it, so they can live it, so they can make meaning from it. I think that's kind of my big, my big aspiration. Thank you, Kevin, for that uh, fantastic deep discussion about all of those things. Um, we're going to move on to our regular slots, if only because I don't want my uh, temporary studio to run out of battery or anyone to pull the very long wire out that's running uh, through my garden before we get to the end of this. Um, I think <laughs> you've probably uh, you've probably already got the accolade of the guest who's made the most uh, recommendations of uh, books and authors. So it almost feels a little bit bad to ask you this, and, and feel free to uh, let me know if you're if you've exhausted your apparently limitless supply but we do normally ask uh, for a recommendation for something interesting that you've read listened to or seen recently that you think you'd like to share uh, have you got anything oh yeah I'm gonna, what's what's one that i haven't like uh it doesn't have to be curriculum before. related <laughs> <laughs> you can diversify if you want well you know what's really funny is um you, you, once you start engaging, particularly in the kind of the reconceptualist notion of curriculum, you, you start to see everything as, as curricular, uh, everything as a curricularizing experience. So you think about stuff like how do I, how does this become a, a thing where we think about how do we teach this to someone? And um, I, I had a funny uh, connection with, with Henry Drew the other day. I was watching a television show, I think it was Westworld. And we're not much on television but in the lockdown you know we've started binging like on box sets and stuff like that um and in fact before we moved to wales we didn't have a tv we hadn't watched television for like seven years and we came to wales and now we're watching bake off and all this stuff but anyway the other night we were watching westworld and uh, the character the one of the main characters there said um think about um these circus elephants these elephants that can go through and and knock down trees and and uh turnover cars and tramp uh, stampede and stuff like that you know they're very powerful passionate intellectual animals um yet at the circus they're they're staked down by this little uh, insignificant piece of wood and chained and they don't ever push against that stake they just stay in that one place and they never think about uh, escaping and he says and how does that happen and he says that happens because they're staked when they're very very young and they've come to think about that stake as being immovable as a young elephant. And then as they get older, they never go back and reflect and, and test it. They just assume, well, this is the static reality. This is the thing I'm in. And uh, I was reading an article from Henry Drew about you know this kind of critical approach to education and kind of trying to find a new language to overcome this kind of technical rationale that's dominating education right now, particularly higher education. And he used that analogy. And so if you, if you, the easiest way to find the article, because I can't remember the name of it right now, is to just locate Henry Giroux on Twitter. And it's one of his most recent tweets. Um, but it was fascinating. One, the serendipity of the moment, you know, of, of both of us kind of referring to this elephant being staked. But then two, I think just that concept of, of us, it jarred me enough at that night that I paused the television and sat with my wife talking about, you know, what what's our stake? How, how might have we been staked? And what do we need to look at? What do we need to investigate? What do we need to critically examine to make sure we're not currently being staked? <laughs> and so that's, that's maybe the thing that I'd like people to take away from this is, you know, what's your stake? Ooh, that's definitely given me some stuff to think about. 
Okay, <laughs> Kev, we um, <laughs> that's, that's normally my reaction when you you talk about something deep, Kev. I need to go off and and spend some time having a good old think about it over a cuppa or something stronger. <laughs> um, we also ask about well being. Um, we're in lockdown right now. Aside from uh, making Oaxacan uh, delights, how do you look after your well being in education? Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, we, if you want to look at the curriculum of the Smith family, for instance, I have three kids, and um, they're all very—they're all grown up, and they're all adults. I think our youngest is 23 this year. And so, uh, the thing, though, the guiding principle we've always had is: um, Are you are you happy? Are you healthy? Are you safe? And so we ask our—we used to ask our kids that. You know, oh, yeah, you happy? And yeah, you know, and tell me about that. And and uh, are you healthy? Well, what do you mean by that? You know, and we we and so we continue these discussions. We we think about those three things. I, f- I feel like if you can be, if you can start to address how you're happy, start to address how you're healthy and how you feel safe or, or whether you don't feel those things, that's kind of the first step in maintaining those aspects of your life. So so that's what we've been doing. We said, in fact, my I think my wife and my daughter who is living with us are kind of wishing I'd stop talking uh, so much because I'm a talker. And uh, sometimes I think I just talk them to death and they're like, dad, we don't need to talk about like why we do or don't feel healthy you know what i mean but for us that's how we've been managing it (laughs) (laughs) i talk a lot and they go dad please stop Happy, healthy, safe. I like it. That's a, that's, that's a good set of questions too. I, I will ask that of my nearest and dearest in our next uh, Zoom conference. It's so strange, isn't it? We're all, uh, we're all meeting each other online now in families. It's very, very odd. And uh, I suppose finally, we're going to ask you this, but this might be something from your uh, lecturing experience, or it might be going back to your days as a rebellious ICT teacher. But we do ask people to share uh, something to try, either either teaching or, or just more widely in the in the professional life as a, of a teacher. So have you got anything that we could try? I think, again, if I was drawing on, yeah, like you said, my, my previous teaching experience, but also my experiences as a parent, my my philosophy was if my children can do it, I should let them do it. And so uh, that requires a lot of careful observation, careful thinking, a lot of careful planning, making sure that the circumstances in which they're doing is, um, you know, safe, obviously, and and that it leads to a, a next good experience. And so if you, as an as a educator, can think about uh, where your pupils are, or your students are at the current time, and maybe things that you normally do that they could then do themselves. Like uh, I could just lecture to them about Dewey's concepts, uh, his two criteria for experience, continuity and transaction, or I could provide them with an opportunity for themselves to, to teach me or teach each other about that. So then how might I go through organizing that experience so that they can meet that task. That's kind of my, I think that's one thing that I would recommend is is sometimes in education, it's kind of an ironic thing. We think about the young people that we're, we're working with and, and they're the, the objects and the subjects of our attention and, and our effort. But sometimes I wonder if we don't engage their agency enough. And so sometimes it might be okay to say, well, I think they can do it. I've got some evidence to, to suggest to the fact that I'm okay in letting them undertake this. And then also, you know, what's the benefit of success? What's the benefit of, of quote unquote failure? Because uh, if we do it right, then even though we might not achieve that aim, we still have learned. And then we can say that's not really a failure. It's just maybe growth in a different direction. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you, Kev. As always, it's been really interesting and enlightening and it's given us lots to uh, to go forward and, and to chew over. Thank you for your time. Stay well. Thank Keep you. cooking. <laughs> we will. And, uh, and, and, <laughs> and hopefully we'll have you back uh, at some point in the future to talk more about education um, and Mexican food. That'd be great. There's a lot yes, of fun. I was going to say, bring that salsa next time. <laughs> Definitely. So that was our wonderful episode with our guest, Dr. Kevin Smith. Thanks a lot, Kev, for joining us. And uh, stay safe, everybody. In the meantime, look after yourselves. Stay well, stay healthy. And we'll be back soon in your ears in a couple of weeks. That was Emma and Tom's PGC podcast presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Dr. Kevin Smith from Cardiff University. If you'd like to check out any of the reading material recommended by Dr. Kev this episode, you'll find them all in the show notes. Happy reading. We're off to pull up the puny steak that's keeping us well behaved and contained. Goodness knows what our next episode will sound like as a result. Until then, take care, stay happy, healthy and safe.